Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast, based on the paper entitled British Society of Gastroenterology Best Practice Guidance Outpatient Management of Cirrhosis Part 2 Decompensated Cirrhosis Published online in Frontline Gastroenterology in July 2023 My name is Dr. Philip Smith, Deputy Editor and Social Media Associate Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and Honorary Consultant Gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital, Liverpool, United Kingdom. My co-interviewer is Dr. Philip Dunn. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be joining you for the second part of this exciting podcast series on the outpatient management of cirrhosis. My name is Dr. Philip Dunn, a trainee Associate Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and gastroenterology registrar in the west of Scotland deanery, Glasgow, United Kingdom. Thank you, Philip. Together, we'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Dina Mansour, consultant gastroenterologist and hepatologist at Gateshead Health NHS Foundation Trust, Newcastle, the United Kingdom. Dr. Mansour is the lead author on this paper. We'd also like to welcome Dr. Lindsay Corliss, Consultant Hepatologist at Hull University Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust in the United Kingdom. Dr. Corliss is a co-author on this excellent paper. Dr. Mansour, Dr. Corliss, thank you so much for joining us on the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast today to discuss your excellent paper, this really useful guidance for this common but very challenging clinical problem. Hello, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure to be Thanks here. For having us. Thank you for joining us. And so to kick off, I'd like to ask uh, my first question. What do you mean by decompensated cirrhosis and why is identification of this change from compensated disease so important? Well, there are two distinct phases to cirrhosis in terms of natural history. The first being the compensated cirrhosis phase where the patient's largely asymptomatic and if there's ongoing damage they then progress to the decompensated phase which is characterised by development of overt clinical signs like jaundice, encephalopathy, ascites and variceal bleeding and really it marks a watershed in the nature and the prognosis of the disease. The median survival in compensated cirrhosis is over 12 years and that drops down to approximately two years in decompensated cirrhosis. And really we should be managing them as two completely different types of disease. This compensated cirrhosis you need to remove the etiological factors to prevent further liver damage and it's focused on surveillance um, and screening. Whereas in decompensated cirrhosis, the focus is much more on managing complications, identifying candidates for transplantation and in those who aren't suitable, ensuring that they have good palliative care. So that's why it's really important and why we separated out the management of compensated cirrhosis from decompensated cirrhosis in these guidelines. Thank you, uh, Dr. Manser. Uh, I'd like to ask you about variceal bleeding. Firstly, who should be screened for varices and how often should they, be, should they be surveyed? And secondly, what is the role for therapies such as non-selective beta blockers and TIPS in either primary or secondary prophylaxis? Okay, so I mean, this is an area in which there is ongoing research and 
It's an area where the management differs between compensated cirrhosis and decompensated cirrhosis. So whereas in compensated cirrhosis, we can use things like the Bovino criteria to identify patients who don't need endoscopy. Um, in decompensated cirrhosis, everyone should have um, endoscopic screening for varices. And we advise that those without any evidence of varices continue annual screening. Patients with small varices who are child C, so the more advanced decompensated disease, should have primary prophylaxis with non-selective beta blockers. Um, those with child B, you can continue annual surveillance, although there is the emerging evidence for use of beta blockers to prevent further decompensation. And um, the BOP trial will hopefully help answer some of those questions. Those with medium to large varices definitely need primary prophylaxis, and that can either be with beta blockers or variceal band ligation. Again, there's emerging evidence that beta blockers may be preferable, but in some patients where um, compliance or tolerance is an issue, variceal band ligation may still be preferred. If they're on beta blockers, then they don't need any further surveillance. If they have variceal band ligation, then they do need ongoing annual surveillance. And obviously, those who have bled in the past need both variceal band ligation and non-selective beta blockers. There is, uh, again, um, a hot area of discussion in the hepatology community about secondary prophylaxis with TIPS in high-risk patients. And there are ongoing studies in that, looking at both early, within 72 hours, prophylactic TIPS and late prophylactic TIPS, and certainly patients who bleed despite variceal band ligation and beta blocker pro secondary prophylaxis, TIPS is definitely an option in those patients. Thank you for summarising. Next, hepatic encephalopathy. That can be quite challenging to diagnose and manage in the clinic. What diagnostic methods do you advise? And what impact does the presence of hepatic encephalopathy have on patient's prognosis, quality of life, and everyday activities such as driving? So hepatic encephalopathy can have a really profound effect on people's quality of life. Families often feel like their loved one has become a different person, and it takes away freedom, uh, for example, from driving restrictions. So it's really important for people to have it recognised and treated. And it also has a really big impact on prognosis because developing overt encephalopathy reduces survival to about 40% one-year survival and, and less than 25% at three years. So it's important that we consider it, recognise it and manage it. And in general, the, the, the best known way to uh, grade hepatic encephalopathy is West Haven criteria where the lower grades, grades zero and one, would be consistent with what we now call covert encephalopathy. And a score of two or above would be overt encephalopathy, where it's really quite obvious that there's something wrong with the patient. The covert encephalopathy side of things, where you're wondering if encephalopathy might be an issue for the patient, can be assessed objectively with tests like the animal naming test, and there's lots of apps as well that you can get on your phone, like Stroop Test, where you have to match a colour with a, a written colour name and trying to match them up and, and not get them wrong, which can be quite difficult. 
But certainly things like the animal naming test are really good discriminators of hepatic encephalopathy. And also, you know, you can get clues from talking to the patient and their family. So things like sleep-wake cycle reversal, issues with short-term memory and loss of concentration that they, you know, they can't follow things on TV or that they, they're slightly different behaviourally are all good clues uh, that encephalopathy might be an issue. And once you think that there is encephalopathy, then you need to think about treatment. And that is directed towards the gut. So lactulose is the first line therapy to reduce the bacterial load within the gut. And rifaximin uh, can be added as second line therapy for those who need it. It's important to think about precipitating factors. Is there something that can make it worse? And sometimes medication can do that. Obviously, acute things like infections can do it. And people need to have good nutrition and boosting of muscle mass because we know that's really important. And I think we're going to talk about nutrition later. And of course, not forgetting that you should always be thinking whether transplant is now becoming something that you should be considering for that patient. Just a couple of words on driving because it's an issue that comes up a lot for patients and their families. And your ability to drive is impaired in encephalopathy. There's no published guideline about how to deal with driving in covert encephalopathy. But the consensus in the UK is that if you've had an episode of overt HE, you shouldn't be driving for at least three months and that people should be asked to inform the DVLA and that they should do that. I think if you don't have overt encephalopathy, but there's concerns about people's short term memory or impaired attention, then it's probably not safe for them to drive. And they should probably inform the DVLA about that as well. And for those where things get better, uh, either on or off treatment, and people would like to think about driving again, then they need to formally reapply to the DVLA. So it's important that people are signposted to the, to the right uh, advice and they can get that from DVLA. Thank you, Dr. Corliss. Really interesting and also really important. Now moving on to ascites. When ascites is first suspected in a patient, how is it best investigated and managed? And furthermore, are there any additional therapies to consider in certain clinical scenarios? Well, ascites is a manifestation of portal hypertension where people have renal dysfunction as a consequence and then they have sodium and water retention. So it's it's a, an important step on the on the journey of cirrhosis because it's signifying that there's now other organs which are being affected. When somebody has new ascites, you obviously need to make sure that it's related to the portal hypertension and not something else. So a diagnostic tap is key there to do the serum albumin gradient and a, a reading of above 11 grams per litre would be consistent with portal hypertension. You should make sure that there's no infection, of course, you know, and, and making sure there's no SBP and thinking about whether there's something that's triggered this new worsening of the liver disease. Why have they decompensated in this way? So you might want to think about whether imaging is required to look at their portal vessels or if there's a new cancer or if there's something else that has triggered this worsening of the liver function. Once you have uh, ascites which you've confirmed is related to their liver disease. The main treatment is diuretics and people tend to use that in a stepwise approach using spironolactone and frusamide. For people who are resistant to diuretics or more frequently that we encounter that they're intolerant to higher doses, uh, you need to think about whether there's other alternative treatments that may be required. So is the person a transplant candidate? Should you be considering something like a TIPS for diuretic resistant ascites? And even things like potentially using regular acidic drainage. And 
which of those you're considering and prioritising will depend on patient factors and, and the holistic assessment of the person. But people who've got refractory ascites that are requiring regular drains should be having that within a day case facility. So a lot of people do that as a nurse-led service, for example. It reduces people's admissions to hospitals. It improves their patient outcomes and it offers an opportunity for the patient to build a relationship with, with a specialist nurse, for example, and can be uh, very beneficial. Indwelling drains, so long-term acidic drains, are still experimental, but are considered on a person-by-person basis in people who are considered to be having palliative care. So they're not suitable for transplant or tips, but are having significant effect on quality of life by having drainage. There is a trial running just now in the UK called REDUCE2, which is an important trial. And and currently we'd recommend that anyone where you're thinking about a long-term drain should be part of that trial, if at all possible. I just want to say a couple of words about renal impairment, because obviously renal impairment and and the associated low sodium are quite common complications that we see in decompensated cirrhosis. And they're very much uh, linked to poor outcomes. People with cirrhosis obviously have circulatory dysfunction and that means that they're more at risk of your pre-renal issues like AKIs when they've got infections uh, and also if they've had a bleed and things like that. But they also suffer from renal causes of AKI like uh, acute tubular necrosis and things like that as well. Um, Hepatorenal syndrome, so when you when you know it's not something that's been driven by an acute event like an infection, for example, is where you have renal failure in the context of cirrhosis and ascites. And that can come on acutely or or more chronically. I suppose if we're thinking about outpatient management, which is the focus of this guideline, then if you're seeing renal function deterioration, you want to be thinking about adjusting diuretics, thinking about other nephrotoxic medications and thinking about how closely you need to monitor it in case you need to escalate your treatment. Thank you, Dr. Collis. Again, brilliant uh, frontline relevant information there. Thank you very much. As we know, the liver is really important as an organ in pharmacokinetics. So what cautions should be considered when prescribing medications for patients with decompensated cirrhosis? Uh, I think people worry a lot about prescribing in liver disease. Um, and certainly the pathophysiological changes that we see can change the pharmacokinetic and pharmadynamic profiles of, of lots of medicines. Uh, some medicines can additionally do things like exacerbating fluid overload or encephalopathy. So sometimes you're trying to manage the different complications that people have of their cirrhosis with different medications at different times. And our guidelines got a nice summary table of prescribing adjustments to consider in some of the more commonly used medications like PPIs, analgesics and anticoagulants. I think the general principles are that you need to think carefully about the potential risk benefits of treatment in each person with decompensated cirrhosis, um, about where their key issues lie and what you're trying not to exacerbate or what you're trying to avoid most importantly. Um, Think about avoiding polypharmacy if at all possible. So regularly reviewing, do we need this when you're looking at the drug charts uh, when they're coming to clinic? And if you're starting a new medication, the the advice is always to start at a low dose and titrate up um, just in case there is any problem with processing. Thank you. In your paper, you note that malnutrition is almost universal in patients with decompensated cirrhosis. Why is this? What are the recommended nutritional targets for such patients and how do you recommend these targets be assessed and met? 
So as you say, I mean, almost all patients with decompensated cirrhosis will have a degree of malnutrition and sarcopenia. And it's often multifactorial. So they often have reduced oral intake due to either encephalopathy or ascites or anorexia related to their decompensated cirrhosis. They can have malabsorption due to um, portal enteropathy or jaundice or pancreatic sufficiency. And often if they have ascites, they can have protein loss into that ascites. The other thing that happens in decompensated cirrhosis is that there are changes in energy metabolism, which accelerate starvation and result in catabolism of the muscles. So they go into starvation mode very, very quickly. They've got reduced hepatic glycogen stores and high circulating levels of glucagon. So they tend to use protein as alternative fuels to um, perform gluconeogenesis and break down their muscles much more quickly than um, a normal person. So you know, the equivalent of them fasting overnight is like us eating for not eating for several days. That means that they need to eat a lot and often. And that really all patients with decompensated cirrhosis should have nutritional screening and advice from a dietitian. And that should include uh, both um, a an assessment of their nutrition and intake, as well as an assessment of sarcopenia, including some functional assessments such as hand grip strength or ability to walking tests, etc. I know that this is something that we do really, really badly in outpatients and Many centres do not not have the facilities to have dietitian reviews for all their patients, outpatients with decompensated cirrhosis. But it really is worth the investment if um, services can develop dedicated dietitian reviews for their outpatients because it reduces. We know that having malnutrition and sarcopenia increases the decompensation, hospitalisation, and mortality in these patients. Um, In terms of assessment, a lot of the routine usual assessments such as MUST score, BMI are not accurate in patients with ascites. You can estimate the dry weight as a minimum and there are also liver specific tools such as the liver frailty index which can be used to assess patients. And it's really beholden on us if we don't have dietitian input to give detailed nutritional advice to patients. The first thing is to meet protein requirements. So they need a minimum of 1.5 to 2 grams per kilogram of dry weight per day in terms of protein. They need to be aiming for at least 30 to 35 calories per kilogram dry weight per day in terms of energy. So for an average 70 kilogram man, that's 2,000 to 2,500 calories, which is very difficult in patients with cirrhosis. They should not be fasting for longer than two to three hours. So they should have meals and snacks. And the particularly important thing is to advise them to add in a a bedtime snack before they go to bed, because that is the longest period of fasting. And that could be like peanut butter on toast. It's usually good to have a mixture of carbohydrates and, and protein in that bedtime snack. There are other variations on the diet that can be made if patients are jaundice and maybe don't tolerate fat so well and adding in nutritional supplements particularly high protein nutritional supplements is very very useful even if patients have a normal energy requirement because they have they are in such a catabolic state and the other thing to consider is short-term enteral nutrition even in outpatients if they you want to for example if they have chronic encephalopathy and you want to maximize their um their 
fitness for transplantation, uh, which is part of the prehab. The other thing to mention is um, the importance of exercise or physical activity, which goes along with nutrition. And that's something we're even worse at. It's really important that patients use their muscles and it depends what their baseline is um, as to what you suggest for them to do. But they need to be ideally doing a mixture of endurance exercise, such as walking or cycling, as well as resistance exercise to try and increase their muscle mass. Thank you. And some really excellent tips in there as well. Dr. Corliss previously touched on liver transplantation and you referenced the recent UK guidance on liver transplant in your paper. Would you mind summarising the salient points and perhaps comment on how these relate to patients with decompensated disease? Yeah, of course. So really, you should be thinking about transplant in all patients with decompensated disease and you should be um, calculating their UCALD score In the UK, the transplants indicated in patients who have any of the typical features of um, decompensated cirrhosis, jaundice, ascites, variceal bleeding or encephalopathy and a UCALD of greater than 14 or equal to 49. It's much better to refer early. And the general take home message from this is it's better to refer and for them not to need transplant than to wait and for it to be too late. There are obviously um, contraindications to liver transplant, uh, the main one being significant extrahepatic comorbidity with predicted mortality of greater than 50% at five years, extrahepatic sepsis or malignancy. And there are some relative contraindications as well um, in terms of patient fitness. However, the important things to consider are Is the decompensation irreversible? Have they had a period of abstinence, which we generally would say three months of um, abstinence from alcohol? Have they had antivirals? If they've got untreated uh, chronic viral hepatitis? If not, are there any definite contraindications to liver transplant? And are they temporary or relative? So could the patient be optimised for transplant, for example, with NG feeding? And if any doubt, just contact the liver transplant unit. And that's the main thing. It's better to discuss these patients than to leave things too late. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mansour, for answering all our uh, questions in such detail and being so relevant as well. Lastly, I'd like to ask about an uh, ever-growing topic, really, palliative care in patients with cirrhosis. Who should be referred for palliative care and when? What, is, uh, what are the common symptoms and problems that, they, uh, that may be addressed by palliative care? Well, people with uh, decompensated cirrhosis have a lot of symptoms. And actually, if you compare them with people with other long-term conditions like congestive cardiac failure, they report more symptoms when you ask them. (laughs) So sometimes we don't ask people enough, I think. And, you know, we know that decompensated cirrhosis has an uncertain trajectory where people can be, you know, critically ill, close to death and then rally round. But overall, the trajectory is downwards. And I think it's important to accept that reality and to communicate that reality to people, because that then allows you to think about the concept of parallel planning. So always hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. And that 
approach, I think, can help keep awareness of the big picture. Where are we going here? You know, rather than maybe fixating on managing small things when the time might be approaching to worry less about, you know, a specific creatinine result and instead think about actually would it be better to tolerate some renal dysfunction here to give people the symptomatic benefit that the diuretics are giving them and we worry less about managing every single thing in the road. So it allows you that parallel planning to to always be keeping the big picture in mind. I think the focus should be on the things that we know add quality to life. So as Dina said, you know, nutrition is really important because having a bedtime snack independently increases quality of life. It helps sleep, it helps mood and all those things. And they're simple to do. Uh, and they're things that families can feel like they are they are doing something important to contribute to the care of their loved one as well. Um, and I think it's really important that people have time to talk, which is not always possible. I think having a multidisciplinary approach where you have nurses and doctors managing services where people feel that they have an opportunity to talk to different members of the team can be really helpful in managing giving holistic care. And a lot of those things can happen without the need for a formal palliative care referral. But for patients where you think they're likely to be in the last year or so of their life, palliative care input can be very valuable. So that might be people who are chronically child C, people who have decompensated alcohol-related liver disease and are continuing to drink, people who uh, are you know, in chronic liver failure but aren't suitable for transplantation or have been assessed on the transplant list, and people with several unplanned admissions. And all those people are likely to be towards the end of their life and will benefit from that big picture view with multidisciplinary care. I think some of the symptoms that uh, are particularly addressed by palliative care input are the general symptoms that we're not very good at dealing with, like nausea, vomiting, fatigue, breathlessness. But we know that when they are addressed, quality of life improves and palliative care are usually better at that than we are. And emotional support, you know, helping the carers and the families think about financial aspects and signposting to all of the other support services that can help people with the rest of their life that also needs managed alongside the physical burden. I think people often worry about safety of medication prescribing and things like that. But especially as we come towards the end of someone's life, uh, you have to be careful that you don't undermanage people's symptoms. And our guideline, again, has some specific advice on that, as do other societies. Um, and, and that approach, as I said before, that multidisciplinary team approach is really vital. And I think we're seeing a lot more centres now introducing MDTs where uh, gastro or hepatologist staff are working alongside palliative care teams and community support and maybe alcohol care teams, dietitians to really link up community and hospital care a bit more effectively, because often it's those gaps between primary and secondary care that patients can fall between. And through all of that, I would say the most important thing is don't forget to talk to the patients. Uh, make, make sure they've got time to discuss things, uh, to bring things up that might be difficult for them to broach and to think about things like what happens in an emergency, resuscitation status and all those things that are really important for high quality holistic care. Well, thank you, uh, Dr Mansour and Dr Corliss, for your excellent overview there and for taking the time to join us to do this Frontline Gastroenterology podcast today. And additionally, many congratulations on having your extended guidance on the outpatient management of cirrhosis published in Frontline Gastroenterology. We look forward to hearing more about part three in your three-part series. 
I'd also like to say congratulations and thanks to Dr. Philip Dunn, uh, Frontline Gastroenterology trainee editor, my co-interview. It's his first podcast today, so well done, Philip. To our listeners, if you want to read this paper, um, which I strongly advise you to do, click on the link underneath this podcast. And of course, please join us again in the future for further Frontline Gastroenterology podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.